The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Last time on The Word in Black and Red. Look, you need a little bit of heresy to spice up your day. All of the game changers were heretics, you think? <laughs> and the Valley of Siddim was riddled with bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled there and leapt into them. <laughs> the God that is about to give a covenant with Abram, that that God is a God of justice and peace, and the interrelatedness of those two concepts. God doesn't really give a shit if you call yourself Christian so long as you act the part. So we're really, really, really tempted to read Jesus into these texts that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. In the academic field of, of biblical studies, we have a word for that, and that word is eisegesis. And it's literally <laughs> one of the first things they tell you not to do when reading the goddamn Bible. That word is literally, I see Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> It's worth tossing out here, too, that in order to have that, we don't need to read Jesus into Melchizedek. To, to paraphrase one of our great modern theologians, a good written narrative, good writing, is like poetry. It rhymes. And yes, I'm referring to George Lucas as a theologian, because of course I am. Um, <laughs> but that that is true. Like, even the Bible has whether you view it as intentional by those writing it or intentional by God in the creating of it, it has a rhythmic rhyme to it. And the narrative flow of this text shows things that we would later attribute to Jesus as happening here in other people as well. Little peaks at the divine that will be made manifest later on. You don't have to read Jesus as being physically present in this moment for Jesus to be kind of written into the narrative in that way. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but I, I, I like a narrative approach to this. Or conversely, because we see the same character qualities here that we later attribute to Jesus, perhaps Jesus is not, now I'm going to say a scandalous thing, here we go, perhaps Jesus is not the sole way to God, right? Like we can't, you know, claim some exclusivity and bang people over the head when they don't claim Jesus as the Messiah in the same way, you know, because because the thing that is being claimed by Jesus has clearly also been done by someone else, right? Don't get me wrong. I love Jesus. But, like, I also stand in a world of people that have been so harmed by people claiming Jesus and claiming that same Jesus with the same intensity, but doing something really harmful to them, right? And so I, you know, and I stand in a world where I watch, like, my colleagues of other traditions spent a lot of time with a bunch of our like LGBTQ Jewish folks in town lately through activism, right? The Christians don't show up as much, but our but all of our like progressive Jewish leaders always are consistently doing the work. Like watching like their take on these sort of texts is very different. But like to be able to say like I'm just pretty convinced that I don't have all of the truth and the and so the theology of the underside, the theology of the oppressed is to say, like, yeah, we don't have it all, and you know something I don't know, but together we're stronger and better, right? And together we have a Amen. fuller picture of the divine. 
so there's a few things that have popped up now. One of the things is the the justification of sort of the early church, because like the, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The justification for reading Jesus into this story in particular is that because as Christians, we tend to believe Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the logos through which God created all things that Jesus is the archetype for Melchizedek. So it's not that Jesus is Melchizedek, which I've heard a lot of people claim. Also, a lot of people think he's Shem for some reason because of some <laughs> Hazalic literature. Um, but uh, but that's that's a that's a conversation for a whole other podcast. But like, so it's not that Jesus is physically in this story, or we are reading Jesus into the story. It is that anyone who acts with this degree of justice and integrity is. Jesus is the archetype for that person. They are acting in the form of of this eternalness that is the justice of God, which Jesus embodies fully when he comes onto the scene. But but a lot of what is being discussed right now is reminding me of an episode of Futurama where Bender gets lost in space and actually meets God. And I have cries. talked about this 15 times in the last two weeks. Oh my God, continue, sorry. <laughs> Fry, Fry is trying to get... Um, Bender back, and the, they found this order of monks in the mountains who have a telescope that they're uh, using to survey the heavens in order to try and find God. And then one of the monks says, he speaks of love for his friend. Perhaps that love is God. And the head monk goes, oh, great, a theory about God that doesn't involve a giant telescope. Get back to work. <laughs> so it's like, that's, that's, that's sort of, I feel like what Lazarus is talking about is like, is we we can see the divine in other things and and in other places outside of our own tradition and the temptation is always to dismiss that be like oh great a theory about god that doesn't involve a giant telescope but but in actuality <laughs> like like there there is something to that and then the the last thing i was going to say is i think i think we just have the word evangelism has just been so misused over the last 1000 years because like i was shocked uh, at one point when someone told me that I had the gift of evangelism because I hate telling strangers about Jesus. But what I was told was that the way that I lived my life and the way that I, uh, like, I, I do talk about Jesus a lot because I'm very interested in Jesus and it just, I, I'm able to relate it back to almost any conversation. And it's not done in a preachy way where I'm expecting people to be converting after our conversation, but it's done in a way that also piques other people's interests and makes them want to know more about whatever the heck I'm talking about, because it's so different from every other presentation of Jesus that they've seen so far. One of the things I've noticed, and I think this connects to what, what the both of you have been saying here, is one of these cases where I think we're all on the same page here. We don't need to read Jesus into Jewish scripture in order for it to have validity. Now, this is something I've seen a lot of progressive pastors have quite solidly fucked up on in their attempts to use religion or to be part of religion in a progressive way. Jesus doesn't have to be present in the Old Testament in order for it to have validity. Our scripture comes from the Jewish tradition, and we can respect that absent of Jesus as a character, and it can still have just as much validity and point just as directly to the God of justice and peace and mercy, whether or not we're reading Jesus into it. And I'll be perfectly honest, I'm fine with Melchizedek being Melchizedek and still teaching us the same goddamn lesson. I don't 100%. need everybody to slap on a beard, pretend to be a white guy, and say, look at me, I'm Republican Jesus, in order for it to work. <laughs> 
Like, okay, I don't, I don't need to do what other, whatever, what other kind of weird fetish porn shit we're doing, trying to dress Jesus up as, <laughs> as everything else. Okay, it doesn't have to be that way. Like, we can have validity for what it is, and there is truth and beauty in the Old Testament as what it is, without us having to read Jesus into it. And that's that's kind of more what I was getting at. Well, first off, it's always important to mention the fact that the number one most popular picture of Jesus is of the artist's gay boyfriend. So every time you see Jesus in an American household, you should be thinking, would he look better in drag? And the answer is always yes. And equally important point is that the, the thing that I was really hoping Jeff was going to say is not that Melchizedek was in the archetype of Jesus, but that Jesus is in the archetype of Melchizedek. And this is really an interpretation that I think is so important as we look at the Old Testament. So often we look back at the Old Testament as if the Old Testament is always telling us about Jesus that is coming. But what the authors of the gospel are doing is they're going back into the Old Testament and they're seeing the archetype that should be the person who Jesus becomes, right? Like, they go back in this story and they say that the person who comes to save us all should be born of a very young woman who is the most vulnerable person in society. That is who is going to save us. And so that's where we get the story of the virgin birth from. They look back in the story and they say that the savior of the world should be someone who embodied the values of justice and peace. And so they understand that as a prophecy foretelling of Jesus. It's not like somebody was sitting in the ancient world and looking at the Bible the way that conspiracy theorists today do and having their red yarn on the line and saying, oh, see, this verse connects to this one that connects to this one that connects to this one to to get us around to Jesus. Uh, No, that's not how it worked. (laughs) They were looking through the Bible, they were looking through their tradition, and understanding the ways in which the person who needed to come and save them would look like Jesus as they understood it. They're building an archetype of the kind of person the Messiah should be, and Jesus fits that person. That's what I think the Bible is trying to do in so many ways, and the and the authors of the gospel are trying to do. And that's why Jesus is the son of David. He's related to the king. That's why Jesus is the lawgiver in the tradition of Moses. And that's why Jesus is standing in for Elijah, or standing in for Elijah, and that John the Baptist is associated with Elijah, right? That Jesus is his name is literally Joshua, the person who comes after Moses, right? Like That Jesus is connected in this integral way to the three people who had come before and is supposed to be the archetype that follows after. And it's not that the Bible was doing prophecy and foretelling the future. That's not how biblical prophecy works. <laughs> Instead, we are reading back into the story. We're looking at the story for the archetype of the person who will be the person to bring about peace. And that's who Jesus is. The next thing that I really want to talk about here is that connection between justice and peace. Can we talk about that through like the selection of Lot? Like we've singled out Lot in this really interesting way. And we know later, I mean, Lot is, you know, our one person who uh, is found righteous, you know. And so I think it's really interesting in this earlier text that Lot is singled out and that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the thing that's not ever really talked about in those like other kinds of interpretations of these texts or like when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, the way that it's presented to us, you know, like we talk about the stories is that these were cities that were destroyed and overrun and then, you know, and like messed up and then, you know, they came back. And so I think like it changes 
it shifts my perspective a little bit that people in this place are also like, we, we don't think of them as the oppressed, right? In a lot of times, because we like we conceive of Sodom and Gomorrah, like when I when I start talking about these cities, I describe them as like, they're not actually very isolated, but for people without cars and electricity and like Google Earth, you know, when um, Lot and his wife and, you know, and, and family like go out from there, like from where they're at, they're essentially walking to the edge of the earth because they don't know they're leaving behind literally everything. And so I, I think it's just really interesting here that it's really easy to see those people, you know, who refuse to give hospitality or, you know, or like whatever, all whatever it is that they, you know, causes them to be struck down. I'm used to thinking about them as the powerful, right? Refusing to give way. But in actually like taking this Genesis 14 a bit there, these are people who have suffered, right? And are also reconstituting their world. But in that reconstitution, they end up not doing right. Lot is a like the the singled out person in the later text. Like it's just interesting that Lot is also singled out here. Like you've got to introduce him somewhere. But so I yeah. so I understand why we're into writing him here because he's our you know mover and shaker in Sodom and Gomorrah. But when Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot are defeated, then the other people come and take everything away from them. And so Sodom and Gomorrah are victims of this oppression, just like the other people, right? Sodom and Gomorrah try to lead this revolt against the people that oppress them and end up having everything taken away from them. And it's only Abram coming in and rescuing them that restores their property back to them. And even goes so far as Sodom saying, just give me the people back. You can keep all the riches, but we'll take the people and so that we can you know, keep our city and whatnot. And Abram says, no, you, you keep all of your things. I don't want you to be able to say that you're the one who made me rich, which is pretty rich considering the fact that Abram has most of his wealth because he conned the Pharaoh into giving him a bunch of things to have sex <laughs> with his wife. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But Sodom here is an oppressed city, just like Lazarus was saying. But we see later on, just a couple chapters later, that Sodom has become this horrendous place that oppresses others, that Ezekiel tells us is destroyed because it, they didn't care for immigrants. They didn't care for the poor. And so that's why they're eliminated. And that Lot seems to be the only person who cared for other people in the city. And that's why he is saved. And so, again, we see the story of Noah, for example, Noah going from being the good guy to being the person who curses his grandson, right? And here we see Sodom going from being the oppressed people to being the oppressors because they're restored to their power. For me, it comes down to the often chanted statement, no justice, no peace. And I think what you were saying earlier that Zedek is he is associated with the God of justice uh, in the Canaanite tradition, it's interesting because the, the Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, which we get from the word tzedek, which is the Canaanite word for justice. If I could take us into Romans 1 for just a minute, basically pick up any English translation of Romans 1, and it's going to be talking a lot about righteousness. The Greek word for righteousness here is dikaiosine. The Greek god of justice is dikaiosine. It is the word that justice and righteousness are inherently combined. And there is a Costa Rican liberation theologian named Elsa Tamez, who has translated Romans 1, and every time we see the word righteousness in Romans 1 in the English, she has translated it as justice, because justice is fundamental 
to righteousness, and it is fundamental to peace. And if there is no justice, there is no peace. I like that. Well said. Going back to the New Testament, we see that Jesus has a number of titles that are held in contrast to the Roman emperors. We call Jesus Lord because you called the Roman emperors Lord. We call Jesus the Prince of Peace because you called the Roman emperors the Prince of Peace. And so there's all of these terms that associate Jesus with the true ruler. And what is false about the Roman Empire they have what they called the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana was not peace. It was, if you try to step out of line, we're going to come and fuck you up. And we're going to murder you and take what we want from you. And then you're going to be left behind. And now we simply have the Pax Americana. If you stay in line with American interests, then you'll be able to survive and be fine. But if you step out of line, we're going to go send the CIA to coup you and, and eliminate your leftist leader and replace them with someone who's more in line with American interests. Or remove your children from you because, like, your own gender identity or affirming theirs. Like, put you in jail because you had a miscarriage. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's coming. Comply or die. The flip side of what I was saying earlier is if you if you read Romans 1 and transliterate justice into righteousness, or righteousness into justice, rather, you also have to do the same for whenever Paul is talking about unrighteousness. And when you read Romans 1 through the lens of justice and injustice, instead of righteousness and unrighteousness, because righteousness and unrighteousness can sort of, it's, it's almost more cultural. It, it has more to do with the community understanding of what's acceptable and not acceptable, whereas justice and injustice are tangible. And if we read the same into this story and understanding what's happening here as matters of justice and injustice and finding the creative force behind the universe, El Elyon, is the God who this king of justice serves. I think we, we start to see a lot of these pieces falling together. That means that, in a, in a, again, in a modern application, you're more likely to find God at a pride rally or a protest than you are in an evangelical sanctuary. 100%. Amen. Absolutely. My question is, though, looking at this text, how is Lot managing to avoid the travails of the worst impulses of his society or like how is it that lot is lured to the you know better possibilities of the divine is calling to instead of like falling prey to the loud reward that seems to come with being the oppressor in this situation i gotta throw down on this one just a little bit because i spent pretty much our in the first third of, of, of my podcast's discussion of the Sodom and Gomorrah incident on this exact question of, like, how is he not the bad guy in this? Like, how is he not as bad as everyone else? And the answer that, that we came down on is he's not any better than anyone else. I mean, if you look ahead to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which I don't want to take away from that one, because, yeah, that's, that's not going to be my area there. Like, lot tries to throw his daughters to the crowd in order to get around shit. Like, he's not a great guy. His salvation from Sodom and Gomorrah is more rooted in God doing a solid for Abram than it is in anything yeah. specific to Lot. And that's that's an important thing to grasp, because when we go back to reading the Old Testament, we're like, well, Lot was the one righteous person in the city. But no, that whole exchange with God was about, like, if I can find one righteous person, I might actually save the city. And God did not save the city. So Lot doesn't necessarily fall into the category of the one righteous person. It's more like he's doing a solid for Abram here. And so, yeah, he's definitely tainted by the society he lives in. 
Yeah, so there's a, a common theme that comes up throughout the scriptures. Jesus definitely fulfills this role. Moses fulfills this role. Abram fulfills this role in the, in the Sodom, in the destruction of Sodom case, and that is the righteous intercessor. And so, uh, Lot falls into the category of people whom the righteous intercessor is interceding for. He's not the person who is, is standing in for the people. He is being stood in for by Abram, and it is Abram standing in for the people of Sodom that saves him, even though he's kind of a piece of shit. Now, I am an anarcho-pacifist, right? I am a pacifist. I think that tactically, pacifism is the system that is going to make the most sense and influence the most people and change the most minds. I am open to being wrong, <laughs> and I'm open to people arguing with me about those things. I That is the conviction that I've come to, is that I am a pacifist, I build community, that's how I think that I'm going to affect change. I don't think everyone has to agree with me, and I think that the best argument that you can make to disagree with me on that is to point out the fact that the Pax Americana that exists in the world is violent, right? It is a violent system that oppresses people and kills people every single day. And when we are inactive against that system, we are violent ourselves. It reminds us of what the Black Lives Matter protest says, is that our silence is violence against those who have no voice. And so it is well worth talking about the fact that here in this story, Abram does not sit, sit idly by. Abram does not sit in the background. He sees that someone innocent is being hurt, and he interrupts the violence that is going on there to rescue people, to defeat the powers of evil, to defeat the oppressors. And that is why the person whose God is justice, who is the king of peace and the priest of the high God, comes and blesses him. We can have a debate on what that means, and we should have a debate on what that means. But I think for me, I'm going to leave us with that question. How do we, as leftists, read this scripture and take from it a lesson that helps us to build the world that we need to see? The world of Melchizedek, the world of justice and peace. Solidarity and community building will get us toward justice. Like the thing I keep saying to my community members and I will say here is that I don't know how we're going to make it, but we know that we will, right? We know that we have us. Love wins in the end, like justice and peace will reign, uh, whether we live to see that or not. And so I think, yeah, like to, to enact this, I agree with you, Micah, that we need to follow like that, which lures us toward, yeah, justice, peace and liberation. I spent a lot of my time fighting off evangelical, I was going to say missionaries, but I almost accidentally said mercenaries, but principles the same. When it comes down to it, though, like the idea of, of justice being the thing is central to what it means to be a Christian. Now, I am, as, as you guys have pointed out, I'm an RCA pastor, which means that I'm pretty much as center of the mainline Protestantism as is possible to be in the, in the general American context. And I have often been quoted and will never shut up about the fact that arguably the greatest sin of the progressive mainline church, which has always been the core of our mainline denominations, our greatest sin has been shutting the fuck up while Schofieldism, evangelicalism, and other cultisms have taken over the church. And we've all, so many of us in the mainline have stood back and said, oh, well, everyone has their own take, everyone has their own opinion, we got to agree to 
to disagree. Peace is more important. Absolutely 100% bullshit. Peace does not happen without justice. And those of us in the mainline of Christianity have been complicit in our silence in allowing this shit to happen. So my perspective is 100% with you. And coming from the, the center of the mainline here, let me say, we've been silent too long. And while I can't speak for every mainline pastor out there, I'm done shutting the fuck up. And I think the rest of us need to be that way too. I think that the biggest thing to end this on is is a reminder that a peace that exists on the oppression and the subjugation of other people is not peace. A peace that only exists because we have killed everyone who disagrees with us is not peace. It is simply war waiting for the next turn. Jeff, Don, and Laz, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I have so appreciated this time with y'all and, and appreciate your thoughts so much. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking around with us. Dear listener, I issue you a challenge. Go to Missouri and show up. And if you can't go to Missouri and show up, donate to a fund or to a person who can so that we can fight at the very beginning these oppressions on people who God loves so deeply that God made them extra holy. Now, past Micah. Take it away. Thank you, future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now, friends, go and live a life so that Melchizedek will say to you, Bless El Elyon, who gave you victory over your enemies. Shalom. Shalom.